Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who are powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Sarita Stevens, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Sarita and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and their failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Sarita Stevens, the Mistress of Mystery. Award-winning author Sarita Stevens has had 30 published books to her credit, including two nonfiction books, The Forensic Nurse and The Book of Poisons. As a forensic nurse, Stevens was trained to observe evidence that physicians may overlook. 
she has been frequently first on the scene of a crime or in an emergency room, which puts her in a unique position to collect evidence regarding accidents, alleged sexual assault, spousal abuse, and other violent incidents. Her book, The Forensic Nurse, How Nurses Help Police Solve Crimes, is currently being turned into a television drama in Canada with Greg Bell, former showrunner of Bones, as the head of production. Writers frequently question Stevens on how to kill off their characters in their books. Stevens, recognizing their need, wrote the Book of Poisons to instruct writers on how to murder their victims correctly. Any questions about poisons? Stevens, a highly versatile writer, has turned her attention to script writing, for which she has won awards for Murder Me Twice and Mother-in-Law. She also wrote Dragon Seeds, The Presence, and Guilty Prey. Currently, Stevens is working on a TV pilot, Gangsta, about the cops who run the gangland stations and a match made in heaven, a true romantic comedy. Other awards. The Edgar Award for Best Horror Short and Best Short Script at Cinema City for the Unborn, now a film. The Anthony Award and McCavity Award for Unholy Orders. The Anthony Award and McCavity Award for Red Sea, Dead Sea. Best Biblical Romance for Romance from Romance Writers of America for Lightning and Fire. Best Western Suspense from Romance Writers of America for Deceptive Desires. Now a script entitled Logan's Land. Watch for Stephen's film Saving Spirit and The Chaperone on the Hallmark Channel. Currently, Stevens lives in the Los Angeles area with her actor husband, daughter, her cats, Caesar, Othello, and Goldie, and her dogs, Paparazzi, who likes to hound her, Cupcake, and Sophia. I will uncover the secrets of Stephen's mystery writing success. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Sarita. Hello, Dr. Eileen. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. You were born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. That's tell correct. Us, tell us about your parents and siblings. Well, um, my father was a chemical engineer salesman, and my mother was a housewife that helped him. Um, unfortunately, my father had an anger management problem and was often violent, and it was a result of that that I became interested in domestic violence and in helping others get an escape from that. Also, too, I know that we, when we had talked prior to the show, you had told me that you stayed alone quite a bit because you didn't want to invite friends to your home because of the domestic violence. Because of my father's temper, yes. Um, and... I was also very much a loner when I was growing up. I I loved reading, and I used to escape into my um, fantasy worlds. 
I think uh, Peter Pan was one of my very favorite books. You and Michael Jackson both loved Peter Pan. Yeah, I guess we did. Tell us a little bit more about your early life in terms of your passion for writing. Well, um, I discovered um, my passion for writing very early on. Um, In fact, I used to write short stories um, for the kids in the neighborhood. uh, And um, in nursing school, um, instead of uh, studying for a physics exam, I wrote a short story. The short story got published, and I failed my physics exam. Um, I used to take care of the kids in the neighborhood, and um, I loved doing that. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I went into nursing, because my parents gave me the option. They said, you can't make a living as being a writer. You have to be either a teacher or a nurse. So I chose nursing. Now, that's interesting. So we have a duality. We have the nursing we have the writing. Now, we know that you started off with the passion for the writing. Do you, did you also develop a passion for the nursing? Um, I have a passion for nursing as far as I do psychiatric nursing right now. And I enjoy talking to people and um, helping them to understand their problems. And uh, I also like hearing their backstories of what's going on and why it goes on and and it helps with my writing as well. And it's also great to get out there, because writing is a very lonely profession. I don't write with a collaborator. Um, and it's it's nice to be able to get out there and talk to people once in a while. Why did you specialize in forensic nursing, and did you intend to use that expertise in your books and scripts? Um, well, I had... Um, I had been getting bored with nursing at the time, and I stumbled on um, uh, somebody who had the name, name Sleuth RN as a handle, um, and I asked her about it, and she told me about forensic nursing, and they had a conference, and I went there, and I was fascinated with it, and I figured that if I didn't know about that, then there were other people didn't know about that, and I wanted to educate the public as to what we do and how we do it. Um, I didn't originally go there with the plans to... Um, use the material in my books, but it's it kind of has evolved in, in that respect. Um, I, I enjoy um, bringing to light um, what we do and how we do it. Um, my practice right now is legal nurse consulting as far as that goes. I don't, I'm not actively doing sexual assault, but I do also consult with domestic violence victims and stuff like that. About the significance of a forensic nurse on the crime scene, and well, why so forensic, why, and why it's really important to have the forensic nurse there. Well, many um, many uh, coroners and medical examiners are now hiring nurses as deputy medical examiners, and when we go out to a crime scene or to um, a death scene, let's say, and we take a look at the medical at the um, at the medications that the patient that the victim has, um, we can often say, "Okay, this patient had a heart problem. Let's investigate about that." Um, and an ordinary layperson might not necessarily understand what to look for in the medications or what the medications mean. Um, we can also look for symptoms, other symptoms, and and other things like poisoning or something like that that the um, a lay detective might ne- not necessarily know. 
So we do help the police in that respect. We also help the police in collecting evidence. Um, every nurse is really a forensic nurse, only they don't know it, um, because anything that happens is a potential for a legal case. The word forensic means legal. So you can be a forensic writer, you can be a forensic um, a mathematician, you can be a forensic accountant and still be forensic. So it would be forensic plus the career you're in, not just necessarily a forensic nurse or a forensic doctor. Would you recommend forensic nursing as a profession? And what are the key attributes and skills to be successful in that endeavor? Well, I, I highly recommend forensic nursing as a profession. Um, that, as I said, every nurse is really a forensic nurse, only they don't know it. And I highly recommend every nursing student to to learn about forensics and to understand how to safeguard um, evidence um, and to look for what to look for in signs and symptoms of things. Um, unfortunately, right now it for the, it's it's still a bludgeoning um, career, and and many people don't yet recognize our value to society, and we're still having problems getting in places or, or being paid full-time for our services. Um, very often, many of my friends who do sexual assault um, have to do it on their off days, um, and they don't get a chance to um, really get paid for the, for what they're doing, or they get paid very minimally. Are there many nursing schools that have that uh um, some there are nursing schools are starting to to get that in in their curriculum now. Tell us about your book, The Forensic Nurse, which is currently being made into to, into a TV show in Canada. I'm particularly interested in hearing about the wives and how they poison their husbands. Oh well, um, that was a case that actually happened when I was a nursing student. Um, I had. Um, a patient that was having um, a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms and we couldn't figure out why, what was going on. And I had been reading Agatha Christie then. And I um, just casually suggested to the intern that we um, test for arsenic. And he poo-pooed it and stuff like that. But when they still couldn't figure out what was going on, they tested the patient and they found out, yes, there was a lot of arsenic in his in his body. And then it seemed to get worse after his wife visited, and we found out that the wife was poisoning him um, with arsenic every time she visited with the milkshakes he liked. Um, but in the forensic book, I divide up the various areas of forensic. There's various types of forensic nurses. There's sexual assault, there's domestic violence, there's elder abuse, child abuse, legal nurse consulting, um, and different aspects of, like that, uh, workman's comp as well as the emergency room, the clinical forensic nurse that works in the emergency room that helps to save evidence. And um, I took different areas of that and case, cases of that. Um, of course, they changed names and locations and pertinent facts about the cases, but I, I gave cases for the book and explained how we worked and what we did. In terms of the TV show in Canada, do you know who's going to play you in that um, well, they're not going to be playing me. Um, it's going to be a drama, and we have characters um, already. But um, uh, Kelly, um, oh, I'm, uh, the lady that plays in the OC is playing our our um, our heroine, uh, and I've forgotten her name offhand. Her first name is Kelly. Okay, all right. 
Um, going further, for 17 years, writers have been learning from you how to kill off their victims correctly. Tell us about that. Well, um, uh, when I was active in Mystery Writers of America, um, I was a vice president there, and people kept on asking me questions about um, how, do you, how does this poison work? What are the symptoms of that? And I said, you mean there isn't a book about there to help you that is understandable? Because all the books were in, in medical language. And they said, no, there wasn't. And so I decided, well, there's an opportunity. And I just took it and ran with it. And um, I pitched it to the publisher, and they accepted it. Now let's talk further about pitching it. And also, too, I like what you had just said about you saw the opportunity. Because sometimes we don't always see the opportunity. So you saw the opportunity, you took charge, you managed the process, and you proceeded. Tell us about the pitch. I mean, recognizing that I'm sure publishers were not interested in educating the general public about how to poison people. Right. So did, did you have that as an objection at all? Well, I did have that as an objection. Um, but since we were doing it for the writing community and we don't have – um, actual amounts needed. We just have it based on a toxicology scale. I mean, on a scale of one to five, how poisonous something is, um, because the amount of poison varies with with um, each person as to what's needed, um, as to what their health is like and what medications they're on. Um, some people are even thrive on arsenic, um, and it might not. They might not, you know, be as susceptible to arsenic poisoning as other persons will. So you're saying you can't really use it to uh, actually... Well, yeah. In other words, you don't have enough information. We don't have enough. They'd have to really do right. research on their own for it um, to decide uh, how much they would need or what would they need for this one, For if they're really trying to do it in, in real life. Um, but it gives enough information uh, on signs and symptoms and uh, where, it's, where the poison is found and... Um, stuff like that, that gives the writers the, um, the handle that they can use to write their stories. Do you know the extent to which the general public has read the book? I don't know that, but I know it's been a very popular book. It's been on Writer's Digest best-selling list for quite some time. The original version was Deadly Doses of Writer's Guide to Poisons, and they just recently had us redo it and come out with a second edition which uh, became The Book of Poisons. Yeah, I like the title, The Book of Poisons. It has an excitement to it. In terms of pitching forensic nurse, how important was it that forensic nursing was a new profession? How important was it to the publisher? Well, um, I don't know how important it was to the publisher, but it was a passion of mine, and I think that's where, when I was pitching it to the studios, it was the passion that that intrigued them of how passionate I was about this new field and and it was something that had never been done before, and nobody had heard of it before and so i I just took the passion and i and I molded it into something that is um, that it was comprehensible to to the producers okay um, Book writers do not usually adapt their own materials into scripts. Why well, and how did you master the art of script writing? 
Well, script writing is a whole different type of muscle that you use in, when you're instead of writing a novel. It's really, really very different, and many novelists cannot make the transition into script writing um, because you don't use nearly as near, much narrative. Your dialogue is much terser. There's a lot of different things, different skills in script writing. I did take some script writing courses, um, and the essence of the story remains the same, um, but it's how it's told is different. Um, and I learned just by reading a lot of scripts and by just doing it and doing it and doing it. You have to constantly redo it. I mean, I can't tell you how many scripts I wrote before my first one um, got optioned, um, you know, that, that I had the experience of that. Uh, you have to really practice and, and learn your craft just like you do in novel writing. In terms of setting the standard and uh, competing with yourself, not against others, will you raise the bar higher and higher and higher to excel? Would you say that you do that both in your book writing and in your script writing? Oh, I'm always looking to better myself. I'm always looking to, to be more professional than I was the last time. And, and a better storyteller than I was the last time. If you look back at your earlier work, do you see your growth? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, one of my books, Lightning and Fire, which is about Deborah the Prophetess, um, was one of my, I wrote five books before my sixth book became my first published novel. And Deborah, Lightning of Fire was one of my, was like, I think the second book I wrote. And I had a passion about that time period about Deborah because my middle name is Deborah and I always had an affinity for her. And um, it, when I first, when I first wrote the book, my, my first husband who was trying to discourage me from writing um, brought it to a, um, another professional writer that his parents knew. And the lady said to me, honey, Go back to your housework. Forget about writing. And I just cried for a little bit, and I said, no, I will not. And um, when I finally got around to redoing the book, it was so much different. I mean, my writing had improved immensely, and that's, again, practice and reading. And do you find it challenging? In other words, does it excite you to keep raising the bar? Oh, it does. It does. I, I keep on challenging myself to do better and better. You're a juggler. How do you manage to keep all the balls in the air without dropping any? Well, as far as my writing projects, I usually have several writing projects going at once in different stages. One I'm actually working on. The other one I might have an outline stage. Uh, another one I might have in research stage. Uh, and um, it it helps to to set your goals and your priorities and to know what's due what's what's not due what you know what you have to accomplish for each day um and you, you just you just have to get a, a sense of of what your priorities are for each day well i think you have to be extremely organized and also take charge and really manage the process so that you're in control of everything you do have to do yes yeah do you ever feel overwhelmed at all, or would you say that you manage the process so that it's doable for you, that you achieve? Well, the there goal? are times. There are times when I'm on a deadline 
that I feel overwhelmed sometimes and I feel like, oh my God, I'm never going to make this. This isn't going to be good. You know, it's, it's terrible, you know, and, um, I usually get my husband to read over my, my scripts, um, before, before I send them in and he goes over them for continuity to make sure that I haven't mentioned, uh, uh, a green, green, um, dress and, and now it's a red dress. You know, he'll, he will check over things like that for me and spelling errors and make sure that terms are correct. Um, and it really helps me to have somebody else there to read things for me. Do you, would you say that you write at a rapid pace? I write at a very rapid pace. It just kind of pours out. I just, you, you get to know the characters. You, you, I do a character sketch first on anything I do before I do any, before I start writing. And I get to know who the characters are. And as I continue writing, they come more and more alive to me. And that's the important thing. And plot comes out of who the characters are, why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, you can have um, several people doing the exact same thing or, do, or being in the exact same situation. But the stories are going to be different because they're all coming from different angles. What's interesting is how you've just talked about the characters and getting to know them. When I interviewed Sherilyn Kenyon, the queen of the vampire uh, novel, it was very interesting how she talked about hearing voices of her oh, characters. Yes. You hear mm-hmm. them too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, they start too. talking. They, you automatically, when you're writing dialogue, you automatically write in their voice. You can just experience them when they're, when they're there. Apparently, that's what she's been doing. She's been experiencing them from childhood. And one of her children also experiences hearing voices uh, as well. Do you, did that happen with you since childhood? or? Well, since- I didn't, didn't hear voices when I was a kid. But, um, but I, when I'm writing, I think, I think that's a skill that I've developed um, uh, over the past um, 10, 15 years. Uh, I don't think I, I think it's something I had to learn how to do. And you have to, you know, develop the characters first and know how you're developing them. Would you say that that has helped you improve your, write, your writing? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You, you let the characters take over. You ask the characters, what do they want to do now? What is going on with them? And they will tell you. Fascinating. Early in your career, you wrote romantic novels. What inspired you to do that? Oh, I used to read a lot of romance novels, and I used to read a lot of historical novels. And at the time I was writing the uh, romance novels, the only way you could write historical novels really was to do them as historical romances. And I love history. I love making history come alive. So I started writing historical romances. Um, I'm not as good writing contemporary romances because I love making the history come alive. But, Did you read uh, a lot of history as a child? I love the history. Hist- I used to read American History Illustrated, uh, which put history into layman's terms. And in fact, my very first published book, This Bitter Ecstasy, is about the Schenectady Massacre um, in uh, New York, New, New, England, New England area, in um, I think it was 1789. Um, I'm not sure offhand, but 
I used to think about what would happen if um, one of the English girls were to um, be kidnapped by the French and what happens if she falls in love with a French captor. And then I had to figure out, well, where did she come from? Since we didn't have a lot of English people in the colonies at that time, I had to figure out where she came from. And so I sourced her back to England and I sourced her back to France, where she had been originally, uh, where she grew up with her mother. And I developed a whole characterization for her. And that's how I developed, that's how she came alive for me. And actually, I stopped writing romance novels because I started feeling that many of the romantic heroes were almost abusive personalities that, you know, you will do this or I'll put you over my knee. You will do this or else. And um, so I I developed um, more of a mystery inclination and started writing that instead. Do you think that had to do with the abusive childhood? Oh, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it had a lot to do with it. What was your first romantic novel that you sold, and how did you feel about about the sale? Well, my first romantic novel was This Bitter Ecstasy. Um, I had uh, been writing for a while, and uh, my sister had seen um, an ad for a packager, which is somebody that puts together... Um, the writer, the illustrator, and the editor together, and then gives the whole package to the publishing house. And he was looking for historical romances, and so I sent mine to him, and they liked it. And interestingly enough, one of my um, students, who later had become very well-known, Patricia Rosmore, um, had sent a, um, a story also with the name Sebastian, with her hero name, and they refused her because they said, that they already had a Sebastian character mine, and they weren't going to take another one. And even though she offered to change the name, they still refused to consider her story, which just shows you how short-sighted some of the editors are, and, and producers as well. Um, what was your other question? I'm sorry. How did you feel? Oh, how did I feel? Yeah, well, after um, it was sold. Oh, I, was, I, I felt great after it was sold. Well, um, I had been shopping it around to agents, and this one agent rejected me. And then I, um, as soon as I had a call from the packager wanting it, I called back the agent and said, do you want to represent me now? And he said, oh, of course. you know. And he, he did. Um, basically, he did just a, a boilerplate deal for me. I don't think he did much to help me to improve it at all. Um, and later he left the company, and so I was, again, floundering for an agent. Um, and uh, you have to develop a, a hard shell about that and just understand that that it's it's a very subjective field. It's, there are people that like your stuff. There are people that don't. None of, neither of them are correct. I wanted to step back to the juggling and the multiple careers. We talked about your daily schedule, but how is there a particular reason why you still continue working in the nursing arena? Well, um, for one thing, unfortunately, you don't make a lot of money as a writer. Um, until I make my big script sale, um, I probably won't make um, the money that I want to make. So... That's one thing aside, but the other thing too is that um, I enjoy interacting with people. As I said, writing is a very lonely profession, and um, it helps me to get out and talk to people and hear other stories and 
get an essence of what people are like and what they're doing. Um, I don't think I would be happy just staying at home all the time and just just writing. So that you build that into your schedule on a weekly basis? On a weekly basis, yeah. Once a week I do my nursing. And do you use some of that in your writing, some of the cases? Um, I haven't yet, but I probably will one time. Um, You know, I have to be careful about um, violating um, anybody's personal privacy or, or, or any case. So I want to be careful about what material I do use. Um, but eventually, um, I'm sure there will be people, some people coming into my writing that are like the characters, like the people that I deal with in the nursing field. But I find that um, the first thing I do in the morning is usually I walk with my husband. We do a, the mall walk. We, you know, do the, the laps around the mall when it's closed and we get to window C and stuff like that. And that helps to stimulate my mind for the morning. And then I get down to checking my emails and then I start writing most of the day. Yeah, I know when we talked prior to the show, you told me you you wrote you write five to six hours a day. Yeah, in some form or another. Either doing the actual writing or the researching or um, calls for research or something like that. Do you think that you're going to write uh, till you're into your 80s? Or oh, 90s? I plan to. You do? I hope yeah. to. Yeah, because I had interviewed um, Ann Edwards, celebrity biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, and she's in her 80s and still mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. And her husband, Stephen Citron, who's also a best-selling writer, he's also in his 80s and still writing. So it's, it's I can't imagine not writing. I, it's, it's in your blood. Um, Harry Mark Patrikas, who was a Chicago writer in residence many years ago when I was taking a class with him, um, somebody asked him, well, when do you give up? And he said, honey, if you can do it, give up now. Because if it's in your blood, it's in your blood, and you can't, you can't not do it. And that's what it is with me. It's in my blood, and I can't not do it. Even if I continue to be rejected, I would still be writing. Fascinating. What are you working on now that we should be watching for? Well, um, besides working on um, Match Made in Heaven and uh, a Spy Kids um, type movie and a TV pilot, um, I am working on a book called Hollywood Women, a Balancing Act, in which I'm interviewing many of the major Hollywood women players um, like uh, Gail Ann Hurd and um, Andrea Wong and... Laura Ziskin, and I'm interviewing them about how they manage to balance their lives and still be mothers and wives as well. And um, that's coming along very well. How did you get the idea for that book? Um, well, with any any book I write, if I have a question for myself and I have trouble answering it, I figure there are other people that have trouble answering it too. And... Um, it was because I was having trouble balancing my life at one time. And I decided to investigate that and figure out how I could do it better. And I figured that other people might have clues or hints to help us in balancing our lives. What career advice do you have for our listeners? Just keep at it. If you want to do it, don't give up your dream to keep at it and continue to write and write and write and rewrite and and just polish it and take classes. Um, 
I go to things like Hollywood Expo. I belong to a group called Alameda Writers Group, um, where they have um, various script groups. Um, I just I just keep on writing and learning about writing and reading books about writing. Um, you can never stop learning. Um, even if I think I know how to write a certain thing, I will still continue reading a book about writing because it reinforces for me uh, what I already know. And sometimes that helps. I also teach writing too. And just teaching it sometimes brings it out for me and reinforces it for me, what I have to do for this character or, the, or this plot um, as I'm talking to my students. Your personal life. In 1995, as a single mother, you adopted a Romanian child, Alexandra. Right. How, how old was she, and did you direct your adoption efforts to Romania uh, for a particular reason? Well, um, yes, um, I adopted my, my efforts toward Romania for a particular reason, um, there's a saying, it's hard to raise a Jew. And I knew I wanted a Caucasian baby if I could get one because um, it would be easier for her to fit in with society, with, with the Jewish society. And um, my grandparents had come from Russia and Romania, and I first tried Russia, and they wanted to give me a spina bifida baby. And they said she wasn't that bad, that they just wanted to get her out of the country and get her medical care here. And I rejected her because... Um, I figured it was hard enough raising a healthy kid as a single mom that I didn't want to have to raise a child that was ill. And um, luckily, Romania had um, a program. Uh, as a single mother, I had a hard time finding a country that would allow me to adopt. Um, and many of them had cutoff of ages, and I was lucky to get in just under the cutoff. Most of them cut you off at 44, and they won't let you adopt after that. I think that's because... You know, in in the in those countries, forty four is an ancient person already. So, how old was she? Was it nine? She was nine months, months old when I got That's her. That's what I thought. Yeah, because I know we had talked about that. And as a result of adopting her from Romania, I I developed an organization called Hearts for Romania that I do with my friend Diana Curcio, and we help um, the orphans that are left behind by making playgrounds for them and giving them outings to McDonald's and, and clothing and extra food supplements they don't necessarily have and things like that. And it's a very worthwhile organization. You have been married three times. Right. Why were the first two husbands wrong fits? Well, my first husband didn't want children. He say his his mother used to say, "May you be as your children be as bad to you as you've been to me," and he used to be scared that um, that his child would would end up being bad to him. And he was never he was actually an ideal son, but I don't know. He was scared of being a father, and I left him because I truly wanted to have a child of my own. And my second husband, when I married twelve years later, I had already been trying to get pregnant on my own. And it wasn't succeeding. I thought, well, maybe God wanted me to um, do the baby the natural way and to be married. And it turned out that I was married to this man only for four months because he turned out to be abusive and to pull a gun on me. And um, and my third husband I met online, uh, a group called Soulmatch.com. Um, I had basically given up and said, okay, God, you know, you want me to be married, you find someone for me. 
and Hank was the first one that I found um, that was online there, and he was a widower and uh, had no kids, and it helped that I didn't have a husband to um, worry about for for competing for him for the affections of my daughter, and he became he's become an excellent father for her. After the first two marriages, were you able to figure out your blueprint of the right fit husband? Did you consciously search for someone that had specific qualities and characteristics? Oh, I definitely did. I, I definitely did. The thing is is that um, sexual attraction and lust fades after a while, and you're left with somebody that you want to be with for the rest of your life. Um, Hank and I are best friends, and we talk constantly about everything under the sun, and we have a lot of similar um, interests, and um, it helps to to be a friend, to be a best friend with your with your husband as well as be sexually attractive to him. Um, he's not the most handsome man in the world, but he's handsome to me. Um, you need to understand that um, the good men are not necessarily the ones that are dangerous and and you know wild and stuff like that. You need somebody that's stable and and who loves you. And um, it's just important to to develop your relationship, you know, for, along those lines. You're now married three and a half years. How long did you know each other before you got married? We knew each other for six months before we became engaged and then got married in six months afterwards. How quickly did you decide he would be the right fit? Um, I think it was after, like, the second or third date when I saw how he interacted with my daughter. In fact, she was a big choice, a big a big factor in the, his choice because I, I wouldn't have chosen anyone that she didn't like. Did he have children? Does he have children? No, he doesn't have any children. And he was ecstatic at being a father. This really is the right fit. Oh, it definitely is. Definitely is. Uh, uh, God has blessed me with that. Sarita, you are a win-without-competing woman. You know I try your, to be. You know your core identity. You are soaked in passion. You understand right fits. You compete with yourself and raise the standards against which you measure yourself higher and higher. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. Come back soon. Thank you, Arlene. Upcoming show. Please join me again on Wednesday, October 21st at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview independent filmmaker Suzanne De Laurentiis, who follows in the footsteps of her family of successful filmmakers, producers, and directors. Her company, Suzanne De Laurentiis Productions, independently produced Tenth and Wolf, Brothers by Blood, Silicon Towers, Pocket Ninjas, Skate Dragons, Twin Towers, Graduation Day, Out of the Black, Shut Up and Kiss Me, Rocky Five, Transylvania, and many others. The film Tenth and Wolf, a drama based on the investigations of mob informant Joe Postoni, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, won numerous awards. 
Suzanne De Laurentiis has won the prestigious Opal Award from Women in Film, a Lifetime Award for Music in Independent Films from the Hollywood Fame Awards, and the Distinguished Founders Award for Excellence in Filmmaking from the Palm Beach International Film Festival. De Laurentiis started the Cinema City International Film Festival, which debuted at Universal Studios in 2007 and was rated one of the top 25 film festivals by Movie Maker magazine in the festival's second year. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit drbarrow.com and check on the date of the show description and click on the date of the show description that interests you to connect to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest listening to Ann Edwards, celebrity biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, Sherilyn Kenyon, New York Times bestselling author and queen of the vampire novel, Jan Constantine, general counsel of the Authors Guild, who won the copyright case against Google, a landmark decision. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, D-R-B-A-R-R-O, that's Dr. Barrow, at winwithoutcompeting.com, or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.